Thank you for tuning in. And welcome to the third episode of the 2021 End of Summer Podcast Series, a series where I'm taking a fresh look at the seven most downloaded podcast episodes over the past year, and a series that ties into a greater overall theme of issues and opportunities I continue to see express themselves in leadership teams throughout the industry and across the country and in both smaller and larger firms. And today's episode on private equity-backed ownership and investment is interesting, particularly in how it links directly with our most recent podcast episode on maximizing the value of your firm with Tracy Eaves, and in how it links with two other very popular episodes, episode 62 on understanding and excelling with ESOPs in AEC with Alex Moss within our top 10 most downloaded episodes this year, and episode 18 on better onboarding for greater success with Kristen Gallagher, one of last year's most downloaded episodes. Altogether, I have been told that these four episodes provide an MBA-level education on the business of AEC ownership acquisition, valuation, and value creation. All this being said, today's featured episode is episode 60 with Todd Mustrate, Chief Growth Officer with Apex Companies on the topic of private equity and M&A, mergers and acquisitions in AEC. And again, this episode with Todd, as I'll do throughout this series, will follow this fresh introduction in its entirety. I will also add specific links in the show notes to the other three episodes I mentioned that form the AEC MBA Quartet. So as I re-listened to this episode with Todd, five big things stood out. Number one, private equity-backed ownership and investment is truly different. It's not the same as public stock market-based ownership, which I've been a part of. And it's not the same as private employee or principal-led firm ownership which I've also been a part of, and which I think most of us are used to. Number two, as with most all groups of businesses or organizations, not all are the same. And as Todd told us, that's certainly true for PE firms. The third thing that stood out as I re-listened is that I really appreciate Todd walking us through exactly how private equity ownership is different, what they look for, and the mechanics of a deal in terms of courtship, structure, and integration in an open and honest way, and as a practitioner who truly cares about our craft. Number four, I can see the appeal of private equity ownership and investment. If I was an owner of a firm, as Todd describes in the upper right quadrant, in terms of high growth and profits, and I wanted to maintain that, had a group of fully aligned employees, but was looking to transition or exit, and for whatever reason, had no immediate successor or successors, private equity seems to offer a path that before was much harder to find. That said, and this takes me to my fifth item, when we think about private equity ownership and investment, we need to be thinking business. With private equity, we're dealing with professional business people, bankers and investors, And they're playing a much different, more strategic, and often bigger game. They see assets, have a clear financial interest, and focus on both growth and ROI. And in capturing the value created through recapitalization every three to seven years. 
This is not the quarterly focus of Wall Street, but it's also not the long-term internal transfer legacy focus we're used to. And while the best PE firms with great vision and people, culture, and practice alignment are certainly investing in operations and organic growth, there is for sure a shorter ownership cycle, which as I re-listened, made me think of a quote my friend Bob Kelleher shared with us on another one of last year's top downloaded podcast episodes. His episode focused on the evolution of employee engagement in HR. When he characterized his past experience and perspective on private equity-backed ownership and investment as even in the best of circumstances, this ownership and investment model is like a loving foster family, where even when you truly love each other, and have done great things, you know it's not your forever home and that there comes a time when both parties have to move on. And that's not a value judgment. It's just a perspective on how private equity is different. And it's also part of the reason it's attractive to many owners and teams, just as Todd shared. So in looking to wrap this new introduction up, whether you think it's a good thing or not, private equity-backed ownership and investment is here and becoming a larger part of our industry. And whether we're looking to be a successful legacy firm or to be a coveted acquisition target, the more we know about it and understand it, the better. So without any further delay, here's episode 60 with Todd Mustrate. Thank you for tuning in. We hear a lot about private equity-backed deals in AEC today, but what exactly does that mean? And how is this different or the same as other deals and for M&A in general in our industry? Well, today we speak to someone who knows firsthand my friend and fellow industry insider, Todd Mustrate, Chief Growth Officer at Apex Companies. And in this episode, we dig into mergers and acquisitions, how private equity-backed money is different how PE firms approach value and success, and what life looks like before, during, and after the deal, both operationally and financially, and for all parties involved. And no matter our size or what our specific growth and success strategy looks like, it's important we know what's happening in our industry and better understand the financial and the investor-focused forces helping to shape our industry in real time. The more we know, the better we can position ourselves and our teams for success. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Todd Mustrate, Chief Growth Officer at Apex Companies, and we'll be talking about private equity and mergers and acquisitions. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. 
Thanks, Pete. Pleasure to be here uh, on the podcast today and look forward to talking about our topic. Great. Well, um, I'm super excited that you're here. We've known each other a long time. Um, but first, let's do a shout out to University of New Hampshire class in 1993, because you are the first former classmate guest here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a big achievement, Pete. I appreciate it. And, it, and it, sometimes it's amazing to think back that almost 30 years have gone by um, and specifically working in this business. Right. I tried to, you know, round down to 25, but you've already moved, made the move up to 30. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I'm, but I'm sure, you know, like, like most of, of your audience, um, hopefully we've learned a few things along the way that we can share. Right. Right. Well, as we begin, um, in that mode, um, can, can you share a little bit about you, your career, what brought you to where you are today as Chief Growth Officer at Apex and your involvement um, in M&A and private equity in particular? Yeah, sure. So like many of us, it's been a long, windy, interesting, fun, disappointing at times uh, career, right? And I think uh, for many of us, all of our experiences sort of build on each other um, to, to get to where we are today, to the things that we're doing today. I would say that after, after UNH, um, I went into graduate school um, and, and completed a, a graduate program in civil and environmental, and then got my first job with a private consulting firm in, in upstate New York. And I think like many of us, just really focused on my craft, being an engineer, you know, becoming a professional engineer, and being as, as good as I could at it. But um, I'll tell you with that first engagement, I'd say about three or four years in, I'll never forget this, a piece of paper landed on my desk and, and I, I kind of briefly looked at it and I looked at it maybe later in the week and what it was, was, was ownership in the company. Um, it was an ESOP at the time and I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. And in fact, I didn't even quite frankly believe that it was true, you know, that there was residual value there until I moved on to another private consulting firm and I got paid. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, life-changing. It was enough to take my wife out for dinner, I think, at the time. But it got me thinking about, okay, you're, you're great at your craft. You think, you know, you're continuing to build on that. But pay attention to ownership because this is going to be important in your career. So as time went on, I've, I've taken different roles in large public sector integrated companies, um, private companies, private companies that have been bought by public companies, um, multiple times I've had the opportunity to work in corporate development roles, uh, more recently, um, in a corporate development than president role with ecology and environment. So that was a public sector company, mid, mid cap size. Uh, we were in the marketplace buying, uh, that was a big part of my role when in fact, at the end of the day, I ended up selling that company to a company called WSP, um, for a pretty good premium, about 52% to our shareholders at the time. So uh, I learned pretty quickly that the business of engineering was, was becoming more attractive to me, um, certainly keeping my roots in the practices that I grew up in, but just really had an interest in that. So, so corporate strategy and growth became just part of, part of everything I did every day with every engagement and was fortunate to work for companies like AECOM and a chief strategy and growth officer role, WSP to run the environment business in the U.S. region for them, you know, still having P&L um, responsibility, but really being a business leader. And so what I've noticed over the last three to five years is an increase in private equity participation in our industry. And that really caught my eye. 
Um, so had an opportunity to join Apex Companies, um, which, which has lived in private equity for about 15 years now, uh, very successfully. Uh, it's been a great ride and, and great exposure to the market. So look forward to talking about that this morning. Yeah, and that and that is a prime, you know, the role of private equity today in M and A. Um, before we get into that, though, you know, M and A is such a a big deal today, and we're talking about it. A lot of firms are talking about it as far as strategic planning um, and then implementation, some of their growth strategies. What role? Um, does M and A play in the industry? Is it an increasing role? And ultimately, in, well, in, in a general sense, what are the benefits offered by M and A? Sure. So, um, absolutely, M and A has become a, a big part of the AC space, uh, without a doubt. We have an industry that continues to consolidate. Uh, we have thousands of firms right in the marketplace. Uh, I would say that. You know, from a revenue perspective, there's probably about 18 firms, right, that are larger than $2 billion in gross revenue that capture about 90% of overall revenues in the marketplace. So although we have a highly fragmented industry um, based on the number of firms, and it's, as you know, it's, it's not difficult to put a shingle out, you know, and start your business, um, but there is a high concentration of the revenue within larger firms um, in particular. But again, there's two, three thousand plus firms, which means there's a lot of opportunity for the buyers and there's a lot of opportunity for the sellers. And I think with the escalation that's been going on the last few years, uh, owners and, and leadership within those companies are really seeing the value of joining their organizations with, with other companies. And um, there's a myriad of reasons for that, of course, that we can certainly talk about this morning. All right. I mean, as farmers, a trend. I mean, who's who's buying? Is it these large companies that represent ninety percent of the industry? Who's mm -hmm. buying the most? Is it the smaller firms looking to, you know, uh, mid-sized firms looking to become a little bit bigger? Is it small firms looking to join forces to compete with the larger firms? I mean, are there any trends in who's buying and who's acquiring? Absolutely, absolutely. So let's um, let's maybe take a little reflection back on 2020, for example, um, more more recent data. So, in in calendar year 2020, there were over 300 deals in the in the AAC industry. So, I would say that the first part of 20 was a little bit slow, you know, due to COVID. Obviously, there was uh, people were focused on their operations and performance at that point. Um, but as we got through the second half of 20, there was there really was an escalation of deals. And certainly some of this was due to some business uncertainty. You know, some businesses made a decision that they were uncomfortable in their certain situation or they saw more value joining another company. Um, on the buying side, what we saw was deals trying to get done by the end of the year. And really one primary driver, not the only one, but one primary driver was uh, when, when it was recognized that a new administration was coming in, um, corporate tax um, structure potentially could change. So trying to get deals done uh, by the end of the year became important um, for a number of organizations. But when we talk about the private equity space, and I think this is what's really interesting, is that for the full 2020 year, uh, private equity accounted for 27% of the deals, right? As we got to the second half of 2020, that, that increased to 32%. And then when we got to the fourth quarter, it got all the way up to 38% of the deals. Now, this is really shows that transition from an employee-owned model to an investor-based for a lot of reasons. Now, 
The second part of your question was around who's participating and it's across the board. You know, you certainly have your large firms um, participating, but we're seeing more and more midsize and even small firms looking for, you know, specific acquisitions. So there's, there's more participation. I'd say regionally it's in the, it's in the typical areas, you know, you're talking Pacific Northwest, California, Texas, Florida, even Colorado, those are high growth states in particular, whether it's in the building space or environmental space or, um, or infrastructure space. I think that's kind of cool though, to see some of these smaller firms in particular uh, participating and, um, and it's pretty broad. Um, but I think with expectations of an infrastructure bill, hopefully that hits this year, you're going to see even more consolidation in the marketplace. Right. And there's opportunities, whether you're a small size, mid-size or a larger size company, there's opportunities to win and position yourself in the marketplace, no matter what size you are, if you have the right skill set, IP strategy. Um, so anyone can win. And it's interesting that everyone, you know, different size firms and locations are, are, are in this M&A market. When we talk about private equity backed um, investment in M&A, in a broad sense, how is that different than publicly public money backed M&A um, for number one? And then as far as a, an ownership model, how is it different from ESOPs and the traditional internal employee owned model transition? I mean, that's a broad question, but how, basically how does private equity backed uh, money stand out? Yeah, right. No, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I always like to first start with money's money, but but is it really uh, the same type of money, and how do you deploy it? I would say that first of all, let's let's talk a little bit about what private equity is interested in um, as as potential partners. So, um, it's really those firms that are in that upper right quadrant. You know, highly profitable. Uh, high growth trajectory types of firms. Now, that's not to say that other firms don't participate with private equity, um, but I think you know that's kind of one of the gates that that needs to be understood, at least from their perspective. That's what they're interested in. And the second piece is that when you when you engage and partner with private equity, they're professionals in the financial and banking area. That that's their role prim primarily. They're very very good at it. Many of them. Um, and there's things like access to, to debt terms that you or I, you know, couldn't, couldn't get necessarily that they can get to capitalize your business. So that's obviously a very positive thing. When you look at public sector companies or you look at private companies, uh, public sector companies will leverage everything from pension funds to, you know, stock buybacks and whatnot to facilitate their, their growth agenda. And when you look at ESOPs and private companies, you know, they've got to leverage their debt along with their cash to get deals done. There's a lot of firms out there within that category that get deals done. Um, but sometimes there can be more challenges associated with it as well in order for them to get, you know, enough free cash and debt or, or you know, be willing to take on that debt um, as they run their business. Um, but I'd say that, you know, large companies, large companies in particular now have access to, you know, cheap permanent capital that they could leverage. Um, they're diversified, uh, but quite honestly, they've got to deliver quarterly results, of course, right? And with private equity, uh, we have a, a longer view. You know, we'll talk about hold periods, but, um, you know, a quarter or two, of course, we're, we're looking for repeatable and predictable results. But 
but there is a longer timeline, you know, to get to where we need to get to as a combined combined company. So is that is that one of the the prime differences? It's <clears throat> it, well, we're looking into the upper right quadrant, which, which I mean, I, I would think that most firms, most or most organizations looking to invest, even if they're publicly. <clears throat> want growth firms, right? Well, unless there's a financial reason, right? They're just capitalizing. So I guess, you know, some of the differentiation you said is they're definitely looking at long-term growth because firms that are positioned well, you, you mentioned access yeah. to um, different debt terms. Is mm -hmm. that just the permanent low um, interest debt? I mean, what, what, is, what does that look like as private equity? I mean, so I'm, what I'm taking out is looking upper right quadrant, well-positioned firms ready for growth. They might have private equity back deals, might have a longer term horizon, not necessarily the first couple of quarters. But then you mentioned access to um, better debt terms. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, first of all, I'm not going to uh, claim to be, you know, um, the expert in financial terms, but um, what I've seen, and in particular with our own organization, is if we've got to buy a sizable firm, for example, say we say we might look at a firm that's the same size of ours. You know, that's that's going to be um, that's going to be a pretty heavy, you know, cash outlay and equity outlay for that deal. And um, keep in mind that in many cases, um, you're 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 going to be running your business uh, with a with a you know. Some could consider it a fairly heavy debt load. Um, that's not not something that one would uh, be used to doing, say, in their own private company where they're cash rich or there's a lot of cash on the sideline. Um, you know, you're just you have to manage your debt appropriately. Um, that being said, um, again, these 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 partners are able to um, bring that capital to the table when we need it. And that can be on an acquisition or that could be funding some of the initiatives that we want to get done um, to, to spur organic growth, you know, make those investments. So um, having lived in these different models, I think the ability to get to the capital or get to a decision can happen very, very fast for us. Um, we're nimble from that perspective and there's just not a lot of bureaucracy associated with it. So that's always nice to, to be able to get to decisions quickly. That, that is one difference also um, that private equity firms, I mean, the difference in, in who who not only owns them, but operates them in, in a way to sort of disperse the capital and, and make these some of these decisions on a financial basis versus just a practitioner basis. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, I should I should temper that not all private equity firms are, are equal. Right. So, um, you know, there there are some that are very focused on you know, certain elements and there are others that are maybe get a little bit deeper into management um, operations, but I'll say for us and, and for many that they, they have you as your, as the management team for a reason, you know, run the business. That's, that's a responsibility that, that we expect you to deliver value to. Um, but then being a good partner on the capital expenditure side means, you know, participating in M&A and, and vetting, uh, potential deals and being part of that. So that partnership, I think, works really, really well. Um, I've been in organizations, I've been in public companies and participating in investor calls where, you know, sometimes maybe the board uh, gets a little bit too close to management operations. And to me, that's, that there can be inherent challenges to that. So I think the setup works well. I think the demarcation of responsibilities uh, is set up well, and um, it's just a really, really nice formula that I've seen so far. All right. What, one other sort of big picture set the table question is, 
<clears throat> we hear a lot about um, family office money coming into, you know, it's almost lumped together with pri private equity and family office money is, is having a bigger portion of, you know, bigger percentage of deals in the AEC space. What is private? I mean, if family office money, is it different than private equity? Is it just kind of the same thing? It just comes from a, an individual versus an investor, investor group? How, how do you define that? And is it something that really is also sort of trending up in the industry? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I can get to the family office money aspect in a bit here, because um, I think that is an interesting point. You know, I'll say that on the private equity side, you know, keep in mind that you're part of a portfolio, right? So private equity and, and the ones that, that I'm, you know, interact with are more in that mid cap area. Um, they're not. And can you just not, define mid cap? What, what, what does mid cap mean for maybe, outer space? Maybe, maybe like a uh, one that would be able to take on a, a two, 500 million, 700, 800 million, but their portfolio could be, you know, 10 times that. So you're part of that portfolio and that portfolio could mean, you know, there's some retail in their portfolio. There's, um, there's some manufacturing in there. There's other professional services. So certainly as we look back to last year, you know, someone like ourselves in, in our space performed pretty well because we're a fairly predictable business going forward. Retail, not so good, you know, travel, leisure, not so good. So uh, always nice to kind of be that bright star in the portfolio. Um, the expectations are still there to, to, to build and grow. Um, but just recognize that, right? You know, you're not going to be surrounded necessarily by, by your peer group. Um, secondly, I would say that there's been some other types of investments in the marketplace that have been interesting, even, even outside of private equity. So venture capital um, is, get, is kind of tipping their toes a little bit more. Um, there's some great, uh, for example, buildings and properties firms out there, uh, some in California that I've, I'm thinking of that have some venture capital behind them. And they're really sort of, you know, paving the road for innovative and creative ways of not only design, but how they go to market and how they price and deliver those products. Now, um, obviously venture capital is not for everyone, but that growth acceleration can be just absolutely tremendous. And, um, and sometimes as engineers, it, it can be hard to get our head around that type of growth because we, we tend to be pretty steady in, in terms of, of our path forward. So a lot of interesting vehicles for that. And then uh, last point on the, on the family office side, you know, I'm thinking of some very, very large private equity backed companies right now that might actually transition to that family uh, office money model. There may be like true private investor, family investors out there that might want to participate and buy some of these private equity firms. So um, won't tip my hat, but it, it seems like there might be some interesting things in 21 to that very point, Pete. For sure. And, and that's just coming out of that large, you know, what you read in the Wall Street Journal portfolios to a smaller, I have a nest egg and I, as a, as a family, I want to personally invest in some of this AEC space. So it, it's just kind of the more, it, it's, it's, it's not your uncle getting involved with owning your AEC business, no. but, but it, <laughs> it, it's, it's a larger entity that's more individual versus a large private equity firm. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and they're they're you know either capital firms or they're you know they set up their capital structure or you know they're they're wealthy owners right that that are entering 
uh, this market for their own personal portfolio. So that does exist. And I think that's a good point. Right. And, and you mentioned, you know, money is money, but private equity backed and, and maybe some subset of the family office line and, and maybe the venture capital in some way has a longer term plan in mind. Right. They're looking for some growth and, and the numbers <clears throat> and the value has to follow. Is, is it just about the numbers? I mean, what is important beyond the numbers right. um, with, say, a private equity deal? Right. That's, this is an excellent question, too. And I think it fits the bill on a, on a, a number of different levels. So um, I can tell you, we at Apex uh, spend a lot of time on this topic, you know, beyond the numbers. Um, culture, people, fit, all those things have to absolutely be a priority for us to be able to entertain or advance a deal. Um, most, you know, most private equity uh, owners do have clear strategies for what they want to accomplish financially over the long term. Um, but the reliance on expanding market share, that, that falls on us as professionals in the, in the industry to get that done. I think it's really important, though, that um, we understand um, the, the seller's ownership, you know, what, what their perspectives are on their own personal exit strategies and how long or what their future participation might be. Um, their willingness to support transition during a deal or take on new leadership roles um, and making sure that that next layer of leadership is involved in this process, because that's really who we're going to be leaning on, you know, over the long term to create, you know, additional value with the deal. So, and you've got to ask yourself questions like, um, is this organization going to be integrated? Are you going to stand it up alone? You know, if you are going to integrate it, how fast does that need to happen? Or, or maybe, maybe it can be slower. Um, all of that, I think, dictates success in a uh, a good positive relationship. But you know, we we won't we won't take it further unless unless the culture and the fits there. That not to say that some private equity firms will look beyond that. You know, some are um, some will build up very quickly. You know, with an exit strategy that can be very short. Uh, that's their strategy, um, and you know, one would hope that that's articulated. But those are kind of the questions you want to understand as you as you take a look at this space right and i do want to get into some of the execution and <clears throat> phase and, and how to how best to make this a win-win but just a little bit more kind of on the on the financial side um sure how are deals different or the same in terms of structure you know like cash notes stock earnouts that type of thing <clears throat> are, are are deals a little different as it relates to private equity and are are, are multiples generally the same. Yeah, no. And, and I'll tell you that uh, deal structures, of course, can take uh, a number of forms. Um, but some of the some of the key elements that are included in, in those valuations obviously include what the perspective total price will be. Um, you mentioned multiplier, and that's a multiplier on EBITDA, you know, the profitability of the company. Uh, what is the book of business look like? What does the backlog look like, both hard and soft, the client type and mix? Um, what's the technical expertise and tenure in the organization? Um, some sellers, you know, if their exit strategy is is to take cash out in the transaction, you know, they could be they could be cash heavy deals. Um, but some are are more interested in rolling their you know gaining equity and rolling that equity forward to the next uh, capitalization. And so, um, you may have heard you know that second bite of the apple. Well, that's really what it is. You could you could sell your firm, um, make some gains, 
and then roll your equity forward. And then you've got a compounded growth model for yourself. Um, should you, should you choose that? Now I'll, you mentioned earnouts too. I'll say that earnouts are, are, can be fairly common. Um, but I would say that I have a view on earnouts is that there should be a way to get there. If it's the right connectivity, the right business, the right people, we're doing these for the right reasons. Earnouts can, you know, that can be secondary to the deal. Um, but not always the case. Sometimes you got to have them just to make sure that, that, that value comes through. But I, I always approach it that if it's the right deal and we've got the right people, you know, an earnout um, shouldn't really be material at the end of the day because we're doing these deals for the right, for the right reasons, right? We're going to create that value. Right. And I've also heard some, you know, um, counter thoughts on earnouts is <clears throat> you're basically allowing two cultures to continue after the deal, right? Because you're going to have to, you want to rely on your old way to do things to get the earnout, but you're really then not really leaning into the new culture in the new way of do things. So, I mean, it, it can kind of, you know, one, one of the debates of, you know, the value of earnouts or not, are you just delaying the marriage because you're, you got to stay in your lane to get the earnouts because if something changes, well, you change this so I can't earn out and it just causes some problem down the road, but. It's, it's, you know, I, you're right. There's, there's a, a good explanation on both sides of, of, you know, that argument. Uh, and um, it really just comes down to what, you know, the parties feel comfortable with. So um, a lot of healthy debate, mm-hmm. of course, on earnouts. And, uh, and, you know, the last piece that Pete, you mentioned on, on multipliers, um, I would say, generally speaking, you know, if you're a smaller firm, uh, maybe you're a, I don't know, four, five, six million, you know, total revenue firm and, and, a, and an EBITDA of a million or less, um, you know, you'll be on the lower side of multiples, you know, that could be three or four times, maybe five times, depending on the type of business, I think four to six times is common. Um, but I also say that, you know, there's some, there's some big wins out there. And we, we've even seen with some recent deals with, with Golder being acquired by WSP that yielded to 10 times or a very, you know, one of the largest privately held companies out there out of Canada. So um, the multipliers are there, you know, they're certainly there. And again, that's a public strategic buyer buying a private company. So um, it's kind of interesting on, I have to be careful on, on kind of ranges of, of multipliers because there's just so many different uh, elements that come into play when, when valuation is done. So. Right. And it's just every valuation is different. And I, you know, I've appreciated that from, um, you know, having people on the podcast and talking through the whole valuation methods and what goes into that, that everyone is, is very different, what valuations are, and then certainly what multiplier on top of that, based on the strategic pursuit of the acquirer and, the, and how the acquiree fits into that. It's all, it, it's all very unique um, and really has to be applied one-on-one. Um, you meant for for the practitioners out there, you know, certain terms. You mentioned the the second bite of the apple. Um, you mentioned that private equity might have a longer term horizon or, or looking. You know, it, it, I suspect it may or may not be forever, but it could be longer term or midterm. There's this um, the idea of a holding period and recapitalization in layman lay um, pra, you know practitioner terms. <clears throat> What, what, what is it? What, what is a holding period? What does recapitalization look like? What, what do potential firms who are looking at acquiring or being acquired with private equity money need to be aware of? Yeah, yeah. So this is absolutely the number one question that comes up um, during you know, my conversations um, with firms. 
uh, they're not familiar with it. It's it's not you know private to private, public to private, and vice versa makes makes a whole lot of sense. And I think people have better visibility to it. So, I would say when you when you talk about a holding period, typically a holding period um, usually is about five years. Now that could go up to seven years. Um, it could be shorter. It could be three years. Okay, uh, I would say that PE firms probably don't want to hold on to it more than, than say seven years. At that point, it gets a little, a little long for that, for their investment cycle. And um, when that time comes, um, you recapitalize the firm. So it's exchange or, or a shift in the ownership of, of the firm, you know, and the new, the new owner coming in and applying their capital, of course, to the purchase price. But you're recapitalizing, you know, the value that of equity that you have in the in the company. So the private equity firm, of course, gets paid a multiple on on their investment that they're looking for, and those that are involved from an equity participation also, you know, realize you know realize that upside as well. So I think what it does is, and we talked about that's the second bite of the apple. You know, if you're in an ESOP, in that case, you're really kind of waiting for retirement, right? To get the value of, of what you put in uh, to the organization over the years. You know, generally speaking, this this can be a, a an accelerated path to to unlocking that value. Um, but many times, I'll tell you, you know, the the key senior management or management leaders, you know, we want them to we want them to be involved in the next recap. So we want them to be vested in in the company and, you know, vested in the success of the company, but it's perfectly fine. You know, we have situations all the time where people want to cash out and stay on for a couple of years and, and help with the transition. You know, that's completely understandable. Well, after the holding period, whether that be three years, five years, seven years, where do you, where do the private equity firms go? What's the marketplace to go to for recap? Do they kind of call their friends? Do they <laughs> put, how, how do they put it out on the market and who, who's then buying in to recap, yeah, yeah, that that's a, that's also a very good question. So, um, I would say that it's a very, very sort of close community. You know, the private equity companies they um, they know they know who's owned by who. They know the timing, you know, of those particular firms, and they get a sense for how well they're performing. Um, and the process can start pretty early, um, quite frankly. But there would be a formal go-to-market process. Um, and there would be, in, in many cases, there could be 10, 20, 30, 40 management review meetings with potential buyers. And, you know, that's typically done with the private equity management firm and, and the management leadership together. And what you want to do is you want to pick your, your, your buyer, you know, you, you together, you want to make sure that you know, everyone's getting the, the the financial gains out of the deal, but you also want to make sure you have a great partner moving forward. So it's it's kind of more of a, it can be a very formal process to go through. Um, and there are a lot of PE firms that are looking to enter the AEC space in particular right now. So, uh, and then of course, there's just a number of PE forums in which, whether it's our industry or other industries where you get together and you know, you, you meet different private equity held uh, firms in our space to, to understand a little more about the business. Right. And in, in some cases, is does uh, at, after the second bite of the apple, do, does say first private equity, private equity firm one, um, who's part of the first apple, 
Um, do they stay involved after the second or do they, are they out? Um, do they, do they retain a piece or do they, is it just, Hey, everyone's a little different, but in general, it really tends to generally be, yeah, transition, right? So, so, so they're out and they've divested their, that component of their portfolio. Um, and I think that's, that's what really leans on, you know, having a really good management team to make that transition, you know, I wouldn't suggest that it would be a good idea to blow that up and, you know, put your own people in right away from, for the obvious reasons. Um, does leadership change though? Could it change? It, absolutely. You know, the, the new owner may have somebody that they know or wants to involve other people. It does happen. Um, but I think what's important for the audience to understand is for probably 90, 95% of the people in the firm, you, you're, you're not even aware of what's going on. You don't feel it. It's not part of your day to day. Um, you're, you're just working for a great company that, uh, in these cases are growing very quickly, right? They're highly profitable, which always gives all of us more opportunities to do more in our career. So, you know, as, as I like to say, it's always, it's always more fun to be in a company that's growing, you know, and it's growing and, and new things are showing up and it's, um, it's a little more transformational for sure. Well, that, that, that's a great segue into talking about the execution pieces. So, um, how how do you feel, feel like a, a PE firm describes success or winning as it relates to, okay, we, we have this deal about to unfold, or we, we think, you know, there's this synergy, growth opportunity, strategy to get together. How, how would you pitch or talk to, you know, different layers in the organization? And, and maybe we can start first with, you know, current owners of the firm that's going to be acquired. And then maybe sort of that next generation leadership that might have some concerns. And then you, you, you mentioned sort of the, the bulk of the, the employees in general or people without an equity position, but maybe kind of go through those three groups of people. What is the, um, the, the talking points as far as, or the, you know, um, how you present, this is how this can be a win-win for you, for the yeah. current owners. Yeah. I think from an ownership perspective, uh, some of this has to do with where they are you know, in their own personal careers as well. You know, if you've got somebody who's a little bit later in their career or looking to exit, you know, their, their own professional career, you know, that, that valuation or that cash out becomes, becomes important, right? Um, for some that maybe still have 10 plus years, rolling that equity is going to be very important. So they get another opportunity to, to, to make some, some profitable growth. And then the third piece I would say for owners is, especially for the smaller firms, the ones that have built these firms from the ground up, um, there's a just a, a strong desire to make sure that their people, you know, are going to be taken care of in, in a number of ways. And so that going back to that culture piece, we absolutely have to make sure that we're listening, right? And we're understanding and we're, we're not just taking that into account, but we're living it, you know, post-deal. And some of the best deals or integrations that I've had are owners that stand up and say, okay, let me walk you through this. Let me, let me walk you through the why. Let me walk through why this is going to be good for you. And it's not just lip service. You know, they're, they're truly reaching out to their staff and making sure they understand what's, what's about that and why it's good for them. So, you know, if you're the next gen leadership and you're, you're, you know, lifting a lot in the business today, right? And then all of a sudden this shows up and you say, whoa, you know, what, what's this mean for me? And look, I, I see this all the time. You know, I see the, 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 the true operational leader and, the, and you could see it in their eyes and you're like, 
what is, you know, what's about, what's happening right now? A little bit of fear and anxiety, but then you could feel it shift towards excitement. Like, wait a second, this could be very, very good for me. And they're explaining this right now, why it's good for me. And, and I would say for those individuals, don't be shy, you know, speak up, do a great job in terms of participating and explaining the strengths of your firm to a potential buyer, because the buyer is looking for that. They're looking for that critical person or persons that's going to be able to drive this business full forward. And I'll say within Apex, um, I don't have the numbers, but maybe 40% of our leadership team comes from, comes from other companies that have come into the business. And so our model really, really relies on, on bringing, you know, the best of the best, uh, best in class people into the business. You know, that, that's, we, we, you know, turn some, some good turnover is natural and healthy for the business. And if we can keep stacking with better people, um, it's great for everybody. It's a win-win. And then the third piece, you know, if you're a project engineer, project scientist, like I said before, um, next thing you know, you know, an acquisition could come in and could be in your city. And next thing you know, there's 50 other associates that you get to work with. And maybe it's in a new area that you're not working in now. So, um, I can tell you, having worked in large organizations, that's the value, right? You get to work on some really cool projects and, and marquee projects. So all three, all three get unique and different opportunities. And, um, you know, some, some can get the opportunity for equity ownership. What about from a marketplace or a client perspective? What thought process goes into, you know, hey, I, I hired a, a a 20 person firm or I hired a 200 person firm to do this because I wanted that midsize, whatever. And now it's, it might be a little bit bigger. And I, you know, the owner used to walk into my office and now somebody else is part of that. I mean, and you know, there's sort of the, is there some marketplace, you know, distraction or confusion or loss of brand strength? And how do you, how do you approach that to, to be a win-win, you know, the concerns with the marketplace? Yeah, no, that's, 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 very, very important. And, and some of this comes out when you look at the contracts that the firm is working on. So you might have a, a natural or cultural resources firm, okay, for example, that has a, li- a lot of direct clients to a DOT or through a, a large engineering firm. But they're, it's more like they're relying on the founder on that relationship for that particular business. And so is the client. Um, what we look for, again, is that next layer of leadership that is, is with the owner, has that relationship. And I think in the case of private equity, and certainly for us, nothing changes on the client experience side. You know, unlike maybe a large public sector company who, who may, you know, in some cases they're true to this, but may claim that nothing's going to change. Think, things are going to change. You know, they just are. It's just part of being part of a large organization, which has many, many great attributes. Don't get me wrong. I think for us, we can do it in a way that um, nothing changes. The experience doesn't change. But in fact, there's more resources to, to address some of our clients' needs or their clients' needs more broadly. And I think a commitment to the region. If it's a local client, you know, we're, we're interested in, in buying in that region, that locality. And you as client, you know, X, you're, you're, you know, of the utmost importance to this deal happening. Now, can conflicts happen? Absolutely. So you got to check with the client and say, hey, you know, we're buying another water firm and 
we want to make sure that you're comfortable with this because now you might have 75% of your business with us because we just bought a firm that, you know, is already a client of yours. So always have those conversations with those clients and, 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 and make sure that, you know, you're not hitting a tripwire with that. So that's a great point. Right. Well, and we've talked, you've talked about some of the concerns and maybe like the, 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 the eyes wide open when the conversation happens um, with, with certain folks, you know, particularly maybe next generation, what are, when you're thinking about the, the acquiries and, and there, there's this potential that you're talking about, um, what are, and maybe re-summarize if, if you've already covered it, you know, what are the common concerns and themes that, that you see that you run into? Okay. I, I, I see the opportunity, but here are my concerns. I, I, are there just, these are just the common ones that you see all the time, or are there, there, there are other sort of trends and concerns where, where people are talking about, number one, being acquired, but then being acquired by private equity money? Well, I think I'll go right to the being acquired by private equity first. Um, there, there's some misunderstanding um, around it, that's for sure. I think a lot of people have these visions and there's some movies out there and whatnot of um, horror stories of private equities coming in, you know, taking all the wallpaper off the wall, stripping the cost down and just flipping it and selling it without any investment. And the space we live in, you know, that's, there's a lot of myth behind that. And I think that's the first gate that people need to get through is that they are investing their money in you um, because not only do they believe you can grow, but they actually, they, they, you know, they want to provide that, that, that equity for you or that cash for you to be able to grow. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's about 180 degrees difference experience than, than maybe what people might have in their mind. Um, so again, you know, we'll talk about culture and fit, and then it goes right to this question that you're asking me right now. I don't know much about this space. Can you please help me understand it? And what they're thinking about is what is the risk to me and my, you know, my partners and my business, you know, they're going to experience like, you know, nickel and diming kind of things. Cause, cause we're not interested in that. And that, and that is certainly not, um, not the case. I think the second piece is stability, right? Fear, fear of instability moving forward. We have a very stable business. Um, we're very comfortable with our business you're suggesting this thing, which is, you know, we sort of understand, but we don't. And hey, what's this recapitalization thing? You know, maybe it's in four years. That's 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 a little bit scary to me now because to me, that's, you know, not stability. You know, that's that's how they feel sometimes. So we just we just have to spend some time to make sure everyone understands what it is and um, that and then it, and in fact, it is stability. It doesn't sound like it, but it is stability to the next recap. And um and the reliance on the leaders in the firm becomes so, so important that there's no disruption through any of these cycles. So um, that's a great question. And, and, you know, always encourage people to have as many conversations as they can if, if they're interested in this space. Right. It almost seems like, you know, synonymous with, well, something is, is changing, it's different, so therefore it might be less stable. And you're talking about, well, it might be stable because it's a larger entity and there's access to capital and it can help you fuel your growth and and that to, and, and maybe de-risk your investment that you personally have in the firm or everybody. It, it's almost like the, um, do you run into the assumption that the status quo is actually risk-free? That if I continue on my path as a firm owner, you know, whether it be 50 people, 500 people, whatever, that if I stay privately held, 
<clears throat> and do that's risk free. And so if I do something, if I look at M&A or be acquired, that's adding risk to the profile. I mean, I, it, maybe it's just a mindset with what's comfortable is ask is, is yeah. may not be risk free. <laughs> well, you know, there's certainly a lot of uh, private companies out there that are very, very satisfied and happy with making good margins, making good profitability, sharing that, you know, of course, across their business, but they don't feel like they need to grow. You know, that's just not a priority for them. They just want to be a healthy, profitable, you know, client responsive type of business. And I have, of you know, complete respect for that view. Um, so I think those firms are less likely to want to engage in a high growth model. Um, but I would say that, you know, my own personal experience is that standing still isn't a good thing, you know, and then in fact, you might be doing a disservice to your people by not putting growth elements into the room. And sometimes it's the last thing you, you think about or you spend time on. You know, we, we all have had regional managers or P&L managers over the, over, the, over the years that, you know, they're focused on the day-to-day. -day. They're focused on people issues, project issues, client issues. And then the last thing they think about is strategy. You know, and I, I'm, always, I'm always pushing hard and saying, when you start your day, start with strategy and then you're going to get your first phone call because there's a people issue and then you know 11 o'clock is going to roll around you're gonna have a project issue make sure you start your day with strategy and, and be a real business leader within your business um because you're not only doing yourself a favor you're doing a you know the rest of the business a favor as well right i mean i and i agree with that i mean growth no matter what vehicle you want to use for growth whether it be organic or or m a strategically planning that growth and then successfully executing your future is the the risky the less risky move moving forward to try to you know mark your your, your plan for the future and then take action towards it again whether you're under under the umbrella of MA or you want to retain you know your firm generally the way it is before if you're not looking forward towards growth and strategic planning you're probably more at risk um, not doing anything Absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. How, you know, so when I, you know, as we look, you know, so there's a deal that's happened. It, it's now people have bought in. Okay. I understand the, the, the potential for this on all the fronts. Deal day happens, right? We, the wedding has occurred. Now we have to live together. I, I, I mean, how do you approach onboarding and making sure that we live up to the deal promises and um, what are some of maybe some pitfalls that you see or you know knowing that there could be pitfalls or that you have heard about um, and experienced some pitfalls in that sort of integration onboarding period what does that look like and how much effort does that take well you know i would say even before the wedding you know you got to get ready for the wedding and that takes a lot of a lot of work um and and it starts with um and, and I'll go back even further. Um, it starts with just having good, clean financials at the beginning of this. And I say that, Pete, because if we can if we can get through that, you know, quickly and effectively, we can spend more time on on people and capabilities. And whenever there's an opportunity, and 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 depending on your situation, um, you know, for me, uh, selling a public company to another public company, our, we had certain SEC requirements, but we, we, you know, we made it public, we publicly announced it, I don't know, five or six months before the closing. So we had five or six months to get ready, you know, 
for that closing date. And we spent a lot of time and energy preparing our own people and then quickly getting with, you know, the new group we were joining and getting people familiar and comfortable with each other um, in the potentially new setting. And having that time, you know, I call it integrating before you're integrating, get as much of that integration done as you possibly can before you close the deal. Now, sometimes you don't have that time. So uh, potentially in some of our deals, a lot of people might not know about it until a certain time, right? And that certain time could be right before the deal closes, but there are things you can do to kind of steer your people or get your people ready uh, for an impending deal. I'll tell you that Apex, because we've been in private equity for so long and our people expect companies to come into our company, they're kind of trained, you know, they're, they're excited for new organizations to come in. They, um, they've been through it enough times that, you know, there's not a, there's not a whole lot of anxiety. Actually, there's a lot of excitement, but I understand for those that haven't gone through this before, there can be a lot of, uh, a lot of anxiety throughout this process. And I would just say, ask questions and ask questions. And when you think you're done asking questions, ask some more questions and, um, and, and you'll certainly get answers um, from both entities, but um, there, there, there can be a very long list of, of things that you need to get on pretty quickly around culture, or it's going to be a little bit of a rough start for you. So, and, and you mentioned, you know, firms that have done this before have maybe an onboarding welcoming strategy already in place. <clears throat> I mean, is that, and it's, it's baked in with experience. I mean, do you have like a, for, do you formally think about change leadership and change management and, and walk through like a formal process to, yeah. to build the relationships and build the trust and, um, and counter the, the loss of control. I mean, that can be countered through, I mean, but, but is it a formal process you just walk through and how long does that generally take? Yeah. And, in, in, uh, in all my experiences, it has been a formal, um, integration process and it's very specific in terms of, you know, the legal entities that we have to take care of the people in HR components, the financial components, you know, all the, you know, all the benefits type of stuff. There's a, there's a work stream and there's a plan behind that. And again, a lot of this gets started before, um, you know, before the deal is, is, is actually done. Um, in most cases, I, I tend to forecast about six months to get through the nuts and bolts of, you know, conventional integration components. And typically after a year, you'll see that everyone's sort of acting and feeling like the same organization. And um, I think that's an important point because you can ex you could set that expectation early. Look, um, this is the schedule. Um, maybe, maybe in some cases you're dropping your brand, right. Or your logo, you know, is going to be combined with the new organization and, and making sure people understand, Hey, we got eight months. Uh, there's going to be a transition just on our branding and logo. And this is how we need to um, explain it to the marketplace and our clients. So they understand the value behind this. And um, typically when we talk about this early on, um, it goes pretty smoothly. Right. I don't think there's a lot of surprises that come up, but six months to get the nuts and bolts, about a year to really feel like you're getting those synergies, um, you know, that you expect from a deal. I mean, even with all that planning that goes ahead of time, the, the focus on the people and the capabilities and that formal process, um, because we're humans, I mean, do you see like 
with all great intentions, are there some common pitfalls or surprises that you can almost predict will come up or, or that you see that you just really work hard to avoid? Yeah, um, there are. And I, and I think different, different organizations take, take different approaches on this. I always go to people first, of course, and think about how it's going to affect their mindset and their ability to create value. And um, we have a lot of great practitioners in our industry. They've made their careers on it. Um, they're well known in the marketplace because of it. And then you get to a point where they feel like someone's, con you know, someone's controlling their destiny and making decisions on their behalf. And I always want to make sure that those people have a seat at the table and a voice to try to articulate how the organization could could work. Because if because if that goes south, then you're going to lose value awfully, awfully quick. So engaging with those people early, um, quite honestly, sometimes people kind of blow through that, right? And then they, they don't pay attention to that like they should. And they're, they're devaluing the, um, you know, the, the proposition that they're, that they're putting in place. And so you, you do see, you, you just do see organizations just kind of in a hurry to, to, to kind of get some sheets set up and, and do the financial analysis. So, um, that's Pete, that's probably the biggest one, biggest mistake. And then second to that, um, there are some, some people believe that, or, or, or want to put out there that best athlete wins, right? So it's a, it's an open playing field, the, the acquired company and the current company, you know, there's two director of engineering's, you know, best athlete wins. Well, that's fine, but let's make sure we, maybe we got two great athletes that we really want to make sure that we're leveraging that them the best that we could possibly do in the new organization. Mm -hmm. How do you, it, <clears throat> who oversees this? Is, is it a principal really is dedicated to that six months or a year, not just sort of as a, oh, oh I'll check in on Fridays um, and see how things are going. Um, and if right. I miss that, I'll check in on Monday. I mean, is there a dedicated principal level person sort of in charge of over the next six months, 12 months, you're really the point person to make this happen. Yeah. So you'll, you'll have an integration manager that's set up. That's um, the point of contact that flows through on the buying side. And then um, typically there'll be one on, on the selling entity coming into the organization, but I'll also say that it's fragmented even more where there'll be a finance lead partner with a finance lead and ops operations and operations, business development with business development. So you create this team that's connected and talking very, very frequently, at least weekly. And then you have the leader, right? So um, for myself with the ecology environment, it was my responsibility to integrate that company into the new organization, right? That, that was going to, that was going to be on me. Um, us at Apex, you know, we have different people, different principals that step up into this role. And really an important perspective is that they know our business really, really well. So it can be very seamless to be able to have a liaison on the, on the selling side, same type of person in makeup who knows their business work together very closely. So I'm, I'm, uh, I tend to be in that camp where, you know, I want to make sure we have two, two people who who get, get really know our people and our clients that can collaborate uh, through the integration process. Right. Well, you, you, you mentioned that even during, you know, the height of COVID and as we're working through at least the first half of COVID, maybe the, the first couple of periods of COVID, that M&A continued. 
Um, and that may be because of change of administration and, 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 and tax um, implications of a deal that might have accelerated things. Um, how do you, how have PPP loans affected things? Have they slowed it down because people didn't know how to deal with them that looked like there was cash? I mean, did you just segment that out? Like, well, let's just take PPP out of this whole financial discussion right now and, and just move on like it didn't happen. How, how, does, how do you see the trend of, of M&A moving forward now as we're entering sort of the vaccine period? Yeah, well, and I think certainly we'd all agree that um, 2020 and in, in, in the, the pandemic has reset our industry. You know, we're reinventing how we conduct business. We're reinventing how we win work. We're reinventing how we deliver work. Um, there'll be a time when things kind of, you know, may, may sort of feel like normal again. Um, but I think what it's, what it's done is it's exposed some firms that may have had a heavy reliance on a set of clients maybe in a positive direction, maybe in a negative direction. So I think people have rethought really about diversification of who they're working for. Um, but I do think on the M&A front, we're going to continue to see accelerated consolidation of our industry without a doubt. And I think because there was an eagerness for private equity money to be deployed, you know, kind of pent up demand, even it's kind of like the housing market. I noticed, you know, in the first part of 2020, you know, no, no inventory was moving, you know, it was kind of stuck. And then, and then people started buying homes again, right? And it happened very quickly, right? There was a bit of a flurry of activity. And now as we get through the winter months, at least in my market, there's not a whole lot for sale, but there's an eagerness to deploy capital. Private equity, I think, is in that position right now where they're eager to deploy their capital, make quality buys. And um, you could see that in numbers in the fourth quarter, as I mentioned, you know, almost 40% of those deals are private equity. Um, the second piece of this, Pete, I think is that a lot of deals were being talked about and being developed in 20. And of course, there's a lag phase. So you, you may see a slug here in the first and second quarter deals that were really being worked on remotely. You know, a lot of us had to get this, this stuff done in some cases without even meeting face to face. And in even other cases, doing it in other countries. You know, there were some Canadian firms like Hatch who got some deals done in the US and, and they did that in a different way, in a different format, but deals are still getting done. So I think it's gonna, I think the trend's gonna continue. And um, I think you're seeing some people, you know, some owners deciding, you know, hey, I'm gonna retire. So let's let's accelerate the path on, on a sale. Hmm. And and when as we as we close here, I mean, anything else you'd like to share or add on the subject of either private equity or M and A in general? I think just to reinforce that um, on the private equity side, just recognize that not not all of them are are created equal, so to speak. I think in general, um, there's a lot of great partners out there that you may want to consider if you want to go down that road. Uh, secondly, you know, well, I would say that, you know, being in Apex and, and having 15 years of experience in it, we think we do it well and we think we've got kind of the, uh, the recipe for success or so absolutely very comfortable uh, being in, in this ownership structure. Um, secondly, I'd say don't, you know, don't, whatever your views are of mergers and acquisitions, um, try to set those aside, you know, and, and try to really just have an open mind and learn and listen, you know, to these potential um, buyers. Some of them are strategic buyers and they're really excited about your firm. And there's a reason why they're talking to you. It's not just financially based. They, they truly are excited about the opportunity to work with you. 
And then the third thing I would say is, um, at least for myself, um, I'm always grounded by being a civil engineer. So, you know, as an engineer, my mind works in certain ways, but I've had too many people tell me that they don't believe I'm an engineer just, just based on the job I do today and what I do. But I think that's just the convergence of the passion around our industry and making sure we never lose our compass, right? We have that ethical obligation in what we do every single day. Um, and that really, the things that we do is a privilege to our society as a whole. So um, never lose sight of that, of, of your craft and what you do. Um, and just make sure you put your business hat on and take that into, take that into account. Well, great. I, well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing about M&A in general, but specifically the role of private equity in M&A that, you know, and, and, you know, sharing specifically what it's about, what that could look like, because like, as you mentioned, we don't really understand, a lot of us don't truly understand some of the business implications of what we're doing day in and day out. Uh, we learn that as a practitioner, um, as a, along the way, um, but really kind of talking about that next level of business and understanding, you know, how private equity is working and, and some of those trends. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing about that. Um, how can listeners get in touch with you um, to learn more about you um, and Apex companies? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, the best source would be to, to visit our website. It's, it's apexcos.com. Um, anybody can reach out directly to me at todd.mustrate at apexcos.com as well. I'd be more than happy to, to just chat, you know, about anything that's on your mind, uh, questions you might have. And, and certainly if um, any of this sounds interesting, you know, certainly Apex would, would, would love to have a conversation with you as well. Great. And we'll put all those links in the show notes um, also. So, well, Todd, it was great seeing you again um, and look forward to our next discussion. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You bet, Pete. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.